1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
0: Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the show that brings you the five most compelling news stories in science. I'm Chelsea White, New Scientist News Editor.
2: And I'm Rowan Hooper, Podcast Editor. Welcome to the show. This week we're joined by New Scientist reporters Claire Wilson and Matt Sparks. Hello both. Hello Hello there. there. Coming up on
0: the show today, we are hearing from Sir David King, the former Chief Scientific Advisor to the UK government, about a new approach to tackling climate change.
3: I believe what we do over the next five years will determine the future of humanity for the next few
2: millennia.
0: And we hear exciting and even groundbreaking news from China about quantum computing.
2: And we got the latest COVID information, uh, everything you need to know about vaccinations for children. Uh, Plus, we got a very cool new spacecraft with a solar sail. And we're talking all about cloning. But first, we would like to point any budding photographers in the direction of the fantastic New Scientist Photography Awards. Woohoo!
0: The awards run until July the 31st, 2021, and they celebrate images that illustrate the many ways science and technology impact our lives and the world around us. The three categories you can enter are the natural world, modern life, and our changing environment.
2: There are some excellent cash prizes up for grabs with the overall winner taking home 1000 pounds. Uh, unfortunately, it's only open to our UK-based listeners, but it's free to enter and if you're interested in finding out more, head to newscientist.com/photoawards21.
0: Now, Covid update time. There's a lot of focus on Covid-19 and children at the moment, especially with the UK's announcement that they will stop sending home children from school if someone in their class tests positive. Claire, you're looking into the case for vaccinating children this week. Why doesn't the UK do this when other countries do? We do it here in the US.
4: Mm, Yeah, you're right. So many other countries have recently started offering the vaccine to 12-year-olds and over, um, including the US and several European countries. Now, the Pfizer COVID vaccine has been approved for use in the UK by our medicines regulatory body, but a separate government agency that actually makes the final decision about who in practice will be offered different vaccines, it's still making its mind up. What sorts of things is it
0: considering? What is the evidence about the risks and the benefits of vaccinating children against COVID-19?
4: Well, there are two trials that have shown vaccination is safe and effective in uh, 12-year-olds and over, uh, using the vaccine from Pfizer and the one from Moderna, which are both the mRNA-type vaccines. Now, as well as that, the UK vaccine body is said to be wanting to see more of the real world data on the use of the mRNA vaccines in the under 18s in other countries, because you only start to see very rare side effects emerge when a vaccine has been given to thousands and thousands of people, far more than were in the, the trials.
0: Right. And have any rare side effects like that started emerging yet?
4: Well, perhaps. Um, One thing it will be looking at is reports of something called myocarditis with both the mRNA vaccines. So that means a kind of heart inflammation. It sounds bad. It actually isn't as bad as it sounds. Um, It can be treated and most of the cases are mild and they just go away by themselves. We just don't know yet how rare this side effect is.
2: So I suppose they'll be comparing any risks from vaccination with risks from not being vaccinated.
4: Exactly, yes. It's, so it's often said that for young people, the benefit from getting vaccinated is is in protecting the rest of society, protecting older people. But that's not the case because um, young people do get sick from COVID too. Rarely, they sometimes have to go to hospital. Sometimes they have lingering after effects uh, from the infection. And we don't know why that is, but we know it does sometimes happen. And even if all that happens is they have to take some time off school, uh, well, that's not good after all the education they've already missed.
2: (laughs) Well, it's not good because if any other parents are like me, they just can't cope with having kids at home all the time. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so for now, we're just going to have to wait to see what the authorities in the UK decide. Yes. Yes. And now we want to mark an anniversary. It's 25 years since the cloning of Dolly the sheep. (laughs) She was the first animal ever to be cloned by nuclear transfer from an adult cell, meaning that the nucleus was taken from an adult cell and put into an empty egg and then grown. And it was a massive sensation around the world, this story. So, 25 years on, what is Dolly's legacy – or to put it another way, what has Dolly ever done for us? Mm-hmm. Um, and we went to a briefing this week. And Claire, what was your take? What was your takeaway?
4: <laughs> well, you you have a point. I think you're, you're right. We don't hear so much about cloning these days, uh, despite some of the claims made at the time, including that she would lead to cures for all sorts of diseases. Well, um, I mean, some of those statements may have been exaggerated, especially about the speed at at which things might happen, as is often the way. Um, But Dolly did have a big impact.
2: Go on then. What was the big impact?
4: OK, well, before Dolly, it was widely thought that cells from humans and any other mammals, once they have matured and developed into their final form in adults, like heart cells, skin cells or liver cells, say that they are stuck in that form. You can't rewind them back into an immature or embryonic like state Now, in an embryonic state, they have limitless potential to divide and multiply or to develop into different tissues. Cells like that are sometimes called stem cells. And making stem cells is probably going to be necessary if we are ever to be able to grow new body parts in the lab or heal damaged organs within the body in cool new ways. Now, how Dolly changed things. When they created Dolly, they took cells from an adult sheep, from its udder, and they put the nucleus into an empty egg cell from another sheep. And that egg cell was able to reprogram the udder cell nucleus so that it transformed back <laughs> the into... Udder the udder cell,
2: egg. not the other cell. Yeah, the udder <laughs> yeah. cell. Yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah, so that it transformed back into this embryonic-like state. And the egg was implanted into a third sheep in a surrogate pregnancy. And when the baby lamb was born, it was a perfect clone of the sheep that gave the udder cell. Not the surrogate mother, so this showed that not only could you reproduce an animal, a mammalian animal, by cloning it, but that more fundamentally reprogramming of adult mammalian cells into embryonic stem cells could be done
2: yeah, so that was that's the big deal of it, but because everyone's going on about its legacy, i asked at, at this briefing, I asked Bruce Whitelaw, who's interim director of the Roslyn Institute how often does cloning go on now in practice? And he said they're not even doing cloning there anymore at the Roslin.
4: Yeah, I was, I was a bit surprised by that too. Uh, the snag is cloning is is not actually a very efficient process. Um, depending on the species, it might take several nuclear transfers to create a viable or a healthy embryo, and sometimes even several dozen. Um, if you want to make stem cells, there are better ways to do it now, um, mainly by making something called induced pluripotent stem cells. Now, that just means taking an adult cell and injecting a combination of certain compounds that are naturally present in very early embryos, and then you incubate it in the lab in a certain way and um, follow various steps. But basically, then you get em- you get your stem cells that way. But Dolly proved to the world that this was even possible.
2: Right? Yeah. I asked um, John Oatley; he's um, head of the Center for Reproductive Biology at Washington State University. Where we would be if Dolly had never happened, and he said we we probably would have found the way to make stem cells by this different method, pluripotent stem cell method, eventually. But, you know, it would have taken longer by some years at least. So Dolly accelerated stem cell medicine.
4: And that's a very important thing to have done. Um, The value of cloning now depends on the scientific field, really. So despite the problems, Cloning is worth it for some high value animals. So that's why some companies offer pet cloning services for rich people. <laughs> yeah. And it might help us in resurrecting some extinct animal species or ones that are on the verge of extinction, like jaguars and um, a maned wolf, and there's a species of tamarind monkey they want to try it with. And it's also done with really valuable polo ponies. Mm. And so they've actually got quite efficient at perfecting the technique with horses. Um, It's also really important in medical research, where you might want to create a group of genetically identical animals often combined with gene editing, which you're right, has become a much more widely used technology. But you can combine it with cloning. So, for instance, in 2018, scientists in China created five cloned and therefore genetically identical um, macaque monkeys that had all been gene edited. So they, um, they had a gene disabled that may be important in depression. So what they're doing now is they're testing drugs for depression on those monkeys.
2: OK, so apart from helping in medical research, saving endangered species, resurrecting pets and services to, to polo, uh, what has <laughs> Dolly ever done for us?
4: Well, I think you've answered your own question in that it has. Um, Dolly has done. A fair bit. My one bugbear, by the way, is that I always hated the name Dolly.
2: (laughs) Yeah, named after Dolly Parton because the sheep was cloned from the udder, from the mammary gland and uh, someone thought, Hey, hey. Uh, yes.
4: yes. Well, to, to me, it just seems a bit like a crass schoolboy joke. You know, we used to sell from a mammary gland. <laughs> Tee hee, women have breasts. Core, <laughs> um. So, to me, it's a shame that such an important moment in science has, um, you know, it's just been forever linked with a joke that boils down to objectifying women. Uh, but uh, maybe she would have been named differently if it had happened today.
1: We interrupt this podcast to bring you news of a new audio product from New Scientist.
0: Yes. Subscribers are now able to listen to stories from the world's leading science and technology weekly through the app.
1: We've teamed up with audio production company Sound Understanding to bring you professionally voiced and recorded versions of stories from the magazine each week. It's the exact same content, but in spoken form.
0: It's easy to take part in the New Scientist audio experience. Just go to newscientist.com app, download the issue and explore.
1: Wherever you see a headphones icon, that's where audio content is available and it's all free to subscribers.
0: We hope you enjoy the new app. Check it out and happy listening. Now, Rowan's been talking to David King about how to save the world. King was UK chief scientist a few years ago and now heads up the Climate Crisis Advisory Group. Take it away, Rowan.
2: So David, thanks for joining us. So what's the mission statement?
3: The Climate Crisis Advisory Group has three major targets and then one more. The three major targets are reduce, remove, repair. Reduce, the greenhouse gas emissions that we're currently emitting at over 50 billion tons a year. Deep and rapid emissions reduction. The second is remove, we have to remove the... Greenhouse gases we've already put into the atmosphere. We're over 500 parts per million, including carbon dioxide and methane and other greenhouse gases, and that is way in excess of the pre-industrial level, which was about 275. We aim to bring greenhouse gas levels by the end of the century back towards 350 parts per million or, or less. And then finally, repair those parts of the climate system that are nearing a tipping point or have even gone past a tipping point. And there our focus is particularly on the Arctic Circle region. I believe what we do over the next five years will determine the future of humanity for the next few millennia.
2: In 2021, the, the global emissions are projected to be second highest year on year increase in history. So, So how though do we get governments to put their money where their mouth is and and really make sweeping cuts? Actually, there's two levels to that uh, that question. The first is
3: governments which are running wealthy countries uh, with a large number of wealthy individuals. These are the governments that have the responsibility for the whole world. I have been working within the British government when we had a Department for International Development to see that funding was going into helping countries to generate a transition away from fossil fuels and to generate a means of stabilizing their country against the impacts of climate change that are happening anyway. In Rwanda, for example, they have, as a result, got a policy across every department of government which is aimed at creating a regenerative country, but which is not... Uh, aimed at basing it on fossil fuels as they grow. And now, at last, we seem with Biden in the presidency in the United States that we have got the possibility of U.S. leadership. But U.S. leadership does require significant investment in their own economy and in the global developing countries' economies. And to date, it's very difficult to see that that is actually happening. So while Little Britain has been left in a leadership position since uh, 1997, since 2000. I would say we did our best in that leadership role, but we're not a global hegemon. I do believe that China is focused on managing this problem. They are producing the largest investment in renewable energy systems in the world they're producing the largest investment in new nuclear energy plants to produce power they are focused heavily on creating a regenerative clean economy but of course when your economy is growing at 6 to 8% per annum the demand for electricity is going up really rapidly And if I just switch across to India, these are the key economies, the United States, China, India and Europe. If if these three large economies can manage the transition, then globally, I, I feel we can feel reasonably optimistic about deep and rapid emissions reduction. Now, we also have a project called Mission Innovation, and I'm very pleased to tell you that I was the founder of this Mission Innovation was a program inviting willing nations to contribute up to $30 billion a year by 2020 on developing all of the post-fossil fuel technologies the world needs, using public money and putting the public money into public research organizations, particularly universities. This has been very successful the cooperation of 25 countries representing 75% of GDP, global GDP, is showing that a rapid way forward can be determined by asking willing nations to join a program. Those countries have agreed to spend 40 to $45 billion a year from 2025. And I personally think this willing nation model is the way to get the rapid response needed today. I'm totally in favor of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and the negotiations, but they are extremely clumsy and very slow and very bureaucratic, and they do require 197 nations all to agree. And that has has shown itself to be too slow given
2: the threat to the world's systems that we have today. One thing that worries me and many people is that we're not getting emissions down. Are we sleepwalking into some sort of scenario where geoengineering is the only way to avert this kind of total disaster?
3: I think we've already done that. So in other words, if, if we look at where we are in the world today, I frankly don't think we've got more than five years to put in place Everything that needs to be done over the following decades, in order to manage a, a safe future for for humanity. So I, I don't I don't think we have any time on our hands, which perhaps the sleepwalking scenario would it would imply. I think we've gone post past that stage, and so we really have to do all three. We have to reduce emissions deeply and rapidly we have to remove greenhouse gases, we've put too much up there already. And we have to buy time by, for example, refreezing the Arctic. And it's the Arctic which is threatening the planet altogether now.
2: Yeah, let's talk about that, because um, there have been lots of plans put forward about refreezing the Arctic. I spoke with uh, Stephen Salter, the engineer, for my book. Uh, and I spoke about refreezing the Arctic in that. And, and uh, you know, his method of cloud brightening uses a, a seawater spray, which seems relatively cheap to test it. So um, is that something that you're going to be able to help facilitate? Yes.
3: Uh, Ryan, we are already working on marine cloud brightening. So Stephen Salter and his group at the University of Edinburgh are working together with a group in our Department of Engineering and within the Centre for Climate Repair that I have set up here in Cambridge. So we are working on that. We have considerable work that we have to do and can do on land before we begin to to build the first uh, marine vessel to test Stephen Salter's hypothesis. But I think we are fully committed to marine cloud brightening at the moment. And what we need is is finance to run this through. <laughs> i don 't think once we 've got proof of concept that finance is going to be a difficulty, just as you 've written recently in your book. I think the the funding is going to emerge from the governments of countries like uh, the Netherlands, even like uh, Vietnam, the countries that are most at risk from flooding would be i would think only too happy to help fund this overall project when we get around to having proof of concept, and then we have to run it forward. We will need to build 700 to 1,000 of these ocean-going vessels in order to manage this problem. And it's something that needs to be managed three months in the year, the the polar summer, but every year going forward in time until we have managed to uh, bring greenhouse gas levels down in the future. And that probably will be in 30 or 40 years' time.
0: That was Rowan talking with David King, who heads up the Climate Crisis Advisory Group at the Centre for Climate Repair at Cambridge. And we've got a news story on an ocean fertilisation plan he's working on. We'll put a link in the show notes. That's our sci-fi alert, where we find that something in the magazine this week has already been written
2: about in science fiction. And this week, it's... It's... Uh, this week, it's a solar sail, which uh, they're fantastic things. that are they're really analogous to sails on a sailing boat, but instead of wind pushing the boat along, it's the pressure of light from the sun.
0: Yeah, they're really cool. But the thing I always wonder about is that the pressure's so small. Like, we can feel heat from the sun, but it's not as if we feel the pressure from it.
2: Yeah, we don't get blown over by the heat, <laughs> although you probably did last week. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, but if you have a massive area of sail and and you go really close to the sun, you can pick up a lot of pressure enough to really accelerate you.
0: Okay, so what's the latest on this?
2: So, uh, a team from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory have basically dreamt up a, a fairly decent sized spacecraft, fifty kilograms, with six sails which span four thousand square meters, and they calculate they can get this to within about fifteen million kilometers to the sun, which is really close, because we're 152 million kilometers away. And if you get that close and unfurl the sails, uh, the pressure would accelerate, the light pressure would accelerate the craft as fast as uh, 260,000 kilometers per hour.
0: (laughs) Incredible. It sounds like it would look really cool too. But uh, why would we need to go that fast? Is this, you know, for when we're living in the asteroid belt or on the moons of Jupiter, and we have to get our supplies out there?
2: Yeah, it, it could be uh, in eventually, but the current plan is for more when we want to intercept something that's coming into our solar system. So, you know, we had Oumuamua um, a few years ago, the asteroid, the interstellar object that came through our solar system.
0: Right. And there's one on its way, isn't there? An object from the Oort cloud, a comet called Bernard Nelly Bernstein. So let's do it.
2: Yeah, yeah sure. Let's do it. Um, do you have... I don't know how much it'll cost, but do you have a few million dollars to hand?
0: <laughs> I personally don't. Sorry.
2: Yeah, well, uh, NASA are actually looking for private donors and sponsors to start this. So I guess the the pitch is if to a billionaire is if a super yacht isn't enough for you to show off with, here's your chance to get a solar yacht.
0: Yeah, well, I feel I feel like there are a few billionaires who might want one of these. Yeah. <laughs> what about the sci-fi? Well,
2: they, they've been in science fiction for absolutely ages, Arthur C. Clarke and many others. And that's what's actually cool about the story, that, that all the material science is now there and ready to actually make it work. Uh, so I'm going to go for something called the Bodacious Space Pirate series by Yuichi Sasamoto.
0: <laughs> Bodacious Space Pirate. It sounds like a, it would make a great band name, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> OK, let's talk quantum computing. And a leapfrogging event has occurred, right, Matt?
1: Yes. Yeah, so a new quantum processor has leapfrogged the state of the art and solved a problem in just over an hour that would take a classical computer eight years. And uh, it's likely that there's exponentially better performance in the processor left to come.
0: Impressive. We've talked about this a few times on the pod before, um, when quantum computers harness the weird goings on in the realm of quantum mechanics, and they make these vast improvements in speed over traditional computer chips. So what's happened now? It's gotten even better?
1: Basically, yes. Uh, So a team from Google announced in 2019 that they'd achieved quantum advantage, which is the name given to the point at which quantum computers can solve a problem that a classical computer would find pretty much impossible given a reasonable amount of time. Now, a Chinese team has leapfrogged their achievement and demonstrated an even more capable device that's performed calculations two to three orders of magnitude harder than that. Um, Just before we get into it, We better explain
2: why we're calling it quantum advantage when, you know, people may be more used to the term quantum
1: supremacy that has been going around a lot. So the term quantum supremacy originates with uh, quantum physicist John Preskill in, in 2012. And he said at the time that he wasn't quite happy with the wording because it doesn't quite describe the concept properly. And now supremacy also has some unpleasant connotations in the West and in China as well. The symbol for supremacy has some unfortunate links. So lots of people now are suggesting that we we just change the term. Um, some people have suggested alternatives like quantum advantage, which we're using, or quantum ascendancy, quantum primacy, and even quantum non-uselessness. But nothing's really <laughs> stuck yet.
2: Oh, how surprising that quantum non-uselessness hasn't stuck as a title <laughs>
0: Okay, so what has this Chinese machine done?
1: So the the team created a quantum computer with 66 qubits called Zuzhongzhu. And this represents a huge step forward in power because each additional qubit doubles the power of a quantum computer, unlike a traditional computer where you need to double the number of transistors to double the power. Um, And they ran the same benchmark problem used by Google's 53 qubit processor, but with a larger complexity, made it two or three orders of magnitude harder the processor completed that benchmark using just 56 of its qubits in about 1.2 hours and they're saying that this is a an unambiguous display of quantum advantage
0: wow is this um, you know one of those very super cooled delicate setups uh, that i would never be able to touch i guess what i'm asking is are we getting any closer to desktop quantum computers
1: yeah i think desktop Quantum computers are a long, long way off, and they may never come, really. They're, they're big, expensive, complicated machines in laboratories. And uh, if we do need to access them in the future to do certain specific tasks, then it's likely that we'll probably dial into them over, over the Internet somehow.
2: And what kind of advantage does this give China kind of strategically? You know, they're not out of reach yet, are they?
1: Well, at the moment, this doesn't really offer anything useful yet, But perhaps in the future, um, quantum computers will be able to smash any current encryption easily. They'll be able to do all sorts of calculations that classical computers struggle with, like efficiently planning delivery routes, which is much more difficult than you would imagine, (laughs) or develop new drugs. Um, And China is really leading the way with research into quantum communication and computing at the moment. But there are billions of dollars being poured into it all over the world. Um, So it's, it's really early days. But companies like Google have really got a lot of catching up to do, it seems.
0: That's all for this week. Thanks to our guests, Matt Sparks and Claire Wilson. And thanks to you for listening.
2: As always, do go to newscientist.com slash pod 20 to subscribe to all the wonders of the magazine and get a 20% discount for being a podcast listener. That's newscientist.com slash pod 20. That's it. Thanks again. Do spread the word and see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye Bye bye. 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 This podcast is produced by Oli Gu Podcast Production. Find out more at
1: ogpodcasts.co.uk. Planning for your next trip?
4: Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands.